Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an historian, lecturer, broadcaster and writer. He started his career at the Royal Opera House right after graduating and became a freelance writer and broadcaster in 2011. The Times named him a leading cultural historian known specifically for his work on Central Europe in the 19th and 20th centuries. He's written for publications such as The Guardian, The Times, GQ and The Independent and lectured at several institutions as the National Trust, the National Theatre, the National Gallery and the Royal Academy of Arts. His first book, A Home for All Seasons, is a non-fiction work offering an intimate account of life on the edge of England throughout centuries and styles. Gavin Plumley, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to have you here and to have a look at your beautiful book, beautifully uh, done as well. I must say the cover and all the rest of it is, is very, very appealing. Before we look at the book in detail, I want to talk about your own life and the fact that as a child you felt that you suffered from nostalgia. How is that with somebody who, who's got no real experience of living? It's a strange thing. I, I, I suppose it really began with my family's National Trust membership card. We lived up in North Wales when I was a child, living on Anglesey, in fact, and we'd often go off for weekends up into the mountains of Snowdonia and my parents, having spent their, whatever the membership charge was back in the 1980s on the family National Trust card, would take us off to Penryn Castle or Bodmont Gardens or those amazing properties up there and further beyond too. And my brother and I had these wonderful passports where you could collect stamps from each property. And over time, I became quite acquisitive of the knowledge that was fed to me there. Sometimes you get a little child's guide, sometimes you wouldn't. And um, I took great pride in the fact that I could spot Chinese Chippendale chairs and that I didn't think that that particular collection of Victorian paintings was quite up to snuff. <laughs> and um, I suppose so that gave me this extraordinary taste of, indeed, a period that I had no connection with whatsoever, you know, soda siphons and bell pulls and butter moulds and all those sorts of things that I just found absolutely fascinating. And I, it was a type of nostalgia which a historian, Svetlana Boyne, uh, who's no longer with us, sadly, wrote about, which was called reflective nostalgia. And it is looking to the past not as a place that's better than now, but that does nonetheless teach us lessons. And that they were lessons I learned right from my childhood. Now, I'm guessing that that kind of knowledge in a small boy is not something that endears him to his peers. No, I was, I was a precocious brat, there's no doubt about it, and I wasn't a popular kid. I had a pretty... Well, particularly my teenage years were pretty bad. I, My parents, God bless them, worked incredibly hard, saved huge amounts of money and sacrificed an enormous amount and entrusted my education to a boarding school in South Wales. And they did it with all good purpose and all good intention, and I will never, ever detract from that. I will, however, detract from the school they sent me to and that I went to willingly, thinking that it was a good place, and indeed, it gave me a good education, but it was also a place that harboured bullies and basically made the life of a gay, sensitive, culturally astute, musical boy that wanted to be in all the school plays and read the novels of E.M. Forster an absolute sitting target mm. for a place that was much more obsessed with rugby. I love playing rugby. I slightly realised why I love playing rugby when, you know, but, but I all that tackle, <laughs> yeah, exactly all of that tackle. Um, but it was 
yeah, it was not a it was not a good place. And you know, I think one of the things that I you know sort of joked with my parents once that I'd spent more in therapy than they had spent on school fees was that. I think one of the things that I really felt that just as my character was being formed and the things I absolutely adored were becoming mine. I was being told by a lot of people around me that they weren't of value and indeed that I wasn't of value. And that was that was quite tricky. Mm. You know, it does seem to be a peculiarly British thing, this practice of, of sending your, your young boy off to a school where he really has a very miserable time. Yeah, I mean, but as I say, my parents did it with all good intention there. I mean, they, they they had seen that this particular school, which I'm not going to name because I don't want to give it any kind of uh, publicity, good or bad, had a new music school, had a wonderful set of teachers. And indeed, they were really brilliant, supportive, fabulous people there. There's no doubt about it. And one of them, the chaplain there, a man called John, was a very kind man. So it was a British thing in one sense. And my father was in the Royal Air Force and was supported by the government with a boarding school allowance. So they were actively encouraged in many ways to send their boys off to school. Mm. I think if they knew what they know now, they absolutely wouldn't have done it. And I probably wouldn't have done it either. But it's, yeah, it's a strange, it's a strange educational process. It has changed hugely. And in fact, my husband, Alistair, is the headmaster of uh, of a boarding school. So, I mean, goodness only knows what Sigmund Freud would say about that. But um, <laughs> I think I've sort of, as it were, done exposure therapy and, and realised that things have moved on massively. And they've moved on also because of kids like me going through it saying... This isn't good enough. Yeah. So in terms of your recovery, so to speak, after school, you went off to Oxford. I did. And that was a very remarkably different experience. I mean, you know, if if I think my brother said in, when he was my best man, you know, if school had been hell, you know, Oxford was heaven. And it really was fun. It was I, I can't say I worked particularly hard. I certainly played very hard and played very hard, not only in the amazing pubs in Oxford, but also... As a musician, I was an organ scholar at Keble College and had a really wonderful time and was surrounded by people, of course, that the things that had really been anathema to my school cohort were not remotely anathema to them. They thought that was you know, completely fine. They were a good liberal bunch, you know, and it was much more important to display what you're interested in and what you your passions were and what you wanted to pursue. So it, that was really a place where I, you know, I did feel alive. I was very, very much ready to leave and get out into the world of work after three years, but it remains a very fond place. Where did the world of work take you? I applied for various different posts, well, kind of work experience things, for that first summer after graduation. And I was very lucky that John Allison, who was the editor of Opera magazine, gave me a chance to write for them and I was also very lucky that the Royal Opera House Publications and Press Department took me under their wing. And I worked on those beautiful red programmes that the Royal Opera House luckily still has. And I worked with the various authors of that and I prepared press documents for the following season. And that was the beginning of my life there. <laughs> Talk about being, you know, kind of beginning work with a silver spoon in your mouth. I was really very, very lucky. I mean, I worked hard there, but it was a it was a great break. And in fact, one of my colleagues there, my boss in the press department, secured me my first, uh, as it were, proper paid job, which was to work as a theatrical agent's personal assistant. You also directed choirs, and it was at one of those choirs that you met your husband-to-be. Yeah, while I was working as an agent, I took a summer break and went up to Yorkshire. I'd been invited up there by an old university friend to conduct a choir at York Minster, at Liverpool Metropolitan Cathedral, 
in Harrogate and at Leeds Catholic Cathedral, where Alistair was working at the time. And we'd kind of been set up. Rachel said to me that there's this really lovely boy up here and he reminds me of you and I think you'll get on like a house on fire. And he walked late into the rehearsal, which didn't endear him to me. I I must admit, I wasn't massively pleased with the sort of stormy maestro I was pretending to be that day. But he was just, he's such a soft and kind and wonderfully principled person. And, you know, that was 18 years ago and the rest is history. And, yeah, he changed my world. He really did. Because when I want to shout and want to be aggressive and want to storm at the world, he just, uh, you know, sort of holds my hand and calms me down and and yeah, he's a really wonderful person. And it was great that we met through music, which remains to this day something that's incredibly important to us. He works at a music school and he has it in his bones. And of course, music is something that you still do on, on a daily basis. I mean, you give all these lectures. Tell us about what your various themes are. Well, I suppose they all emanate really from what I would call the blue touch paper moment, which was... You know, going back to my dear parents, them sending me on a choir tour when I was 12 years old from the school that is the great abomination uh, in my life. So, you know, it is a a bit divided because there were great things that came out of that. And again, my parents sacrificed their holiday that year to send me on this choir tour. And it went on its first destination was Vienna. And my goodness, I remember that those days that we spent in Vienna, furiously hot I had salmonella uh, because I got salmonella from an undercooked piece of pork in Vienna. And there's quite a lot of pork in Vienna. And so I had this rather sort of hallucinatory experience of the city at the age of 12. Getting on and off trams, sort of ducking and diving into the um, the Urban. Seeing the and cons- the loo, presumably. Well, and the loo, yeah. I mean, the, the amount of uh, throwing up, which is not great. But then also just, you know, above the streets, seeing a statue of Mozart, one of Brahms of Beethoven, of the old Kaiser, the building where, you know, Hitler greeted the crowds after the Anschluss. And I couldn't believe that there was a place in the world that was quite literally the crossroads of history. And that obsession with that city began at the age of 12 and continues, you know, 30 years on. And that was a place really that fostered this cross-cultural approach to my work. Yes, I was a musician first and foremost, but as soon as I was dealing with, you know, great heroes like Gustav Mahler or Arnold Schoenberg, I realised, well, you can't ignore the fact that they also knew Gustav Klimt and Egon Schiller and Richard Gerstel uh, Gerstel and Vasily Kandinsky and all of these other extraordinary modernists. And my mind just exploded every time I found a new one. You know, along comes Adolf Loos and I learn about modernist architecture and the Bauhaus, and the fact that Mahler's wife, Alma, had an affair, and in fact, you know, a long-standing relationship with Walter Gropius, the founder of the Bauhaus. So it really was this, like, a, like that old party game of consequences, that if you like Mahler, yeah, you're going to end up in the Bauhaus. And that really is what still fuels my work, to take someone on a journey, that word's overused, but someone that, you know, is madly keen on Japanese architecture, for instance, and for them to realise that many of the great exponents of modern Japanese architecture are steeped in the theories, the practices of Walter Gropius and Marcel Breuer 
And where did they come from? To know about Adolf Loos. And then from Adolf Loos to know about all those other characters in Vienna at that time. And that, that for me, allows then other people who are passionate about painting or passionate about literature to actually glean something about music so that their world opens up. I hope that's what I try and do. <laughs> Whether I actually achieve that is another matter. And you do a lot of that through lectures for the Arts Society. Yeah, an incredible charity founded after the Second World War, really to give Thames Valley housewives who had been returned to domesticity after the war an outlet, an intellectual outlet, for them to learn about Botticelli, to learn about Gustav Klimt, to learn about Rembrandt. And it's an amazing organisation. It used to be called NADFAS, um, and the Art Society has... Uh, as it were, franchises, individual societies around the country. There are a number in London, but they go right up to the highlands of Scotland, right down to Penzance. In fact, I'm in Penzance in September, speaking to them down there about Bruegel. And you go and find a really passionate bunch of men and women who are there to learn. And there is a tendency that they are, as it were, third age. Uh, They have come to their love of art history after they've retired. But that's not exclusively the case. There are a number of evening societies. And indeed, there's a great kind of youthful following for it. And I've I've met extraordinary people. A woman I was sitting next to after giving a lecture on Vienna whose father fought at Stalingrad. And on the other side of me at that particular post-lecture dinner, some of these societies are hugely generous with their hospitality, uh, a woman whose father drew maps for Lawrence of Arabia. And I thought... How on earth have I found myself here? And I relish going there. I mean, I do about 50 lectures for them a year, and it's huge fun. It sounds absolutely amazing. Let's turn now to your book, because this started when your husband got a job and you needed to move close to the school. Tell us what happened next. Yeah, we were moving down to the southwest, and uh, we're very lucky, we're very privileged to have a grace and favour with that job. He's a headmaster, and... Yeah, we so we knew that accommodation was sorted, but our property investment uh, was not. We had a house in Bedfordshire where Alistair was previously working, where we previously lived, but it wasn't going to be practical to kind of keep that on or rent it out or anything like that. So we decided that we were going to sell that and, and buy a place where we could escape. The life of a headmaster is full on, 24-7, particularly in a boarding school, and to get out of the school and find a place for us and a place that where, where we could have quiet and consolation. And drew a map around the school, two hours in each direction. And it took us in various different places to Devon, to Dorset. We ruled both of those out, but wanted to go north. And Herefordshire was at the sort of far extremity, really, of those two hours. And so we began a property search and found this incredible village, Pembridge, in Herefordshire, and I knew it vaguely from experience. In fact, one of the wonderful teachers at my school had lived there with his husband. He's sadly no longer with us, though his husband still is and lives in a beautiful 16th century timber frame cottage. And we went into Pembridge one day and saw that this property was for sale. And, well, it was love at first sight, a bit like when I first met Alistair, to be honest. And I stepped over the threshold of Steps House and turned to him and said, well, this is it. 
he immediately said, well, can we actually look at some of the rooms first? Because um, <laughs> that's also who he is. But that was the beginning of this. And luckily, our offer was accepted. It was never going to be a book, though. It was going to just be a haven. And in fact, something quite separate from work. I said, I'm never going to write here. I don't want it to be the sort of George Bernard Shaw's cliched sun hut at the bottom of the garden in Shaw's Corner. I just wanted to be completely on, you know, away from intellectual pursuits or whatever else. But of course, then something was triggered because when we exchanged contracts on the house, an insurance salesman said to me, well, how old is it? And you can't say that to someone who is interested in history and someone who doesn't have the answer to that question without beginning a madcap rush through 450 years. <laughs> Which is what you did. Yeah. Uh, and, and this book is is obviously come out of that. The Literary Review says, what starts out as a straightforward house history morphs into something else, a wide-ranging meditation on place and past, taking in climate change, rural depopulation, the Reformation and folklore. That sounds absolutely huge. It was meant to be a very simple book. It had a very clear quest. How old is the house? I answer the question. And that's why I say it wasn't really a book, because that would be more like a pamphlet. But the problem is when you go in pursuit of those answers, when you're in rural Herefordshire, when you're dealing with a pretty, pretty lowly building, Steps House has changed over time, it's had bits added to it, but the core of it was essentially a barn. It was essentially a storehouse. Between the market square, and we still have the beautiful market hall that was built in 1520, and behind the house is a huge churchyard. I mean, really, really vast. And there's a quite sizable church there and a separate belfry, and they date respectively from the 14th and the 13th centuries. So it was on a crucial site. And as I was trying to find out more about the house and get back in time, as it were, to the moment that we think it was built... Of course, then I started stumbling over what life was like then. And I wanted to know what it smelt like and what it felt like and what it tasted like. And all of those kind of textures that we take for granted every day and indeed aren't written down. Mm. And that really began this foray into the past, which had so many of the textures that that lovely review by Adrian Tinniswood touches on in the literary review, which is are those big events, are those big things that occurred during the 16th century, which is when the house was built. Mm. And this leads you to look at art and poems and all the rest of it that were actually produced when the house was built. I'm a cultural historian, so I take that kind of stuff as a reflection. Some historians would be rather iffy about poems and plays and paintings and prayers and all sorts of other paraphernalia as the basis for you know, decent history. They wouldn't consider that primary source material. I think it is absolutely primary source material. One of the things I quote quite extensively is a speech from A Midsummer Night's Dream by Titania, when she, in Shakespeare's play, is talking about the great fight that she's having with Oberon, the king of the fairies, over a changeling child. And she's describing what's happened as a result of their argument. She said, we see the season's altar and describes hoary-headed frost falling in the fresh lap of the crimson rose. It's, it's, you know, it is one of the great speeches in Shakespeare. But of course, that was reflecting exactly what Shakespeare would have been seeing around him in Warwickshire, and indeed in London, moreover, really in, in his rural life, 
which was the experience of the Little Ice Age at the end of the 16th century. And my house was built right in the middle of the plunge of median temperatures. And so what was that like for rural populations? Well, it meant starvation. They didn't have harvests. They didn't have summers frequently. You know, we see those glorious pictures of frost fairs and we can read about those in Virginia Woolf's Orlando. Everyone's having a gay old time. Well, they're not out in a village like Pembridge. So I wanted to know what that was like. And the Shakespeare text provided that. Likewise, I kept on trying to find how we depicted that time. And there were woodcuts, English native woodcuts of that period. And we get some sense of what villages felt like, smelt like. Certainly, there's a really quite fun one in the book, which is a scene outside a pub and there's a kind of bishop seemingly shoveling horse manure, a girl defecating in the street, you know, all sorts of other things being thrown out of a top window. It can't have smelt very lovely, but it's not really a kind of accurate picture, as it were. It's a suggested picture. But the one of the more accurate, clear-cut images of that time come from Peter Bruegel the Elder. And... Bruegel was someone who quite slavishly recorded agricultural practices, and I kept looking at his work. He's Dutch, of course, and he lived in Antwerp, but he is someone who really studied agriculture across Europe in his travels. And those timber frame villages that you can see in his paintings like The Gloomy Day or The Return of the Herd are exactly like the timber frame village that I live in. And so that became another source for ruminating on the past. Mm. What about the day-to-day practicalities of living in really quite an isolated place in a very old building with perhaps people who've lived in the area for generations who are maybe not quite as sophisticated as you? Well, they have a different type of sophistication and that's I'm not I don't want to sound patronizing about that. They know their landscape really well. There's a wonderful man called Tony in the village. Tony is a farmer And Tony knows absolutely everything about the land he farms. He can come into the churchyard, put a square of rope around a patch of wild grass, and I can immediately identify 50 species there. Now, I cannot do that. I could probably tell you that that's ragwort, and that's a daisy, and, ooh, that looks like a bit of grass. But more than that, you know, I'd have to get books out. He can do it by instinct. So that, for me, is quite sophisticated. And... That ability to know the environment, know the, know the landscape is really extraordinary. And also it is a surprisingly diverse village. You know, we we thought we were going to be new, the kind of gay couple moving in, and in fact thought we were going to meet some, potentially some homophobia. Not a bit of it. It was old news. They're not particularly interested. They want to get about their business. And also you have to prove yourself. And to embed yourself in that society and to show it respect. And one of the things I really botched up early on was that I didn't show it respect by refusing to move our car when a combine harvester was trying to get on with its duty at this time of year because as soon as a contractor turns up to clear your field of wheat, we've all got to get out of the way. So the rules of engagement are different, uh, but you've got to engage with them. So I wouldn't necessarily frame it as sophistication, but I think one of the things I will say is It's about agency and storytelling as well. And one of the things I was really aware of when I was writing this book was that I had to be very careful how I told the story, that I didn't, it wasn't always my story. And to be aware of the tensions in that society, to be aware of what it's like now as well to live isolated. 
you know, we are talking about, you know, I say on the edge of England quite frequently in the book because we're a few miles from the Welsh border and it is different out there. There's no doubt mm. about it. But it has its own rules and regulations and they are they are just as rich as anything right in the centre of town. What did you learn about your house specifically? I learned that it was probably a market storehouse and that it was built very much with different levels for different products, we think. There are no foundations to Steps House. It's just sort of shoved into the earth on a kind of stone plinth. So downstairs would have been fats and meat. On the ground floor, dry, largely dry, thank goodness, would probably be where grain was stored. And then upstairs in what was a loft originally, and then the roof was raised when it was turned into a house, would have been apples and pears. It may have been a lich gate. It may have been a resting house for bodies before they were buried in the churchyard. It may have been all of these things. There was no sort of sense that this was just one thing. You know, a brewer's house would also have been a pub, would also have been where pigs were slaughtered, would also have been a water pump. So I learn lots of things about the house, and I hope the readers do too, but there is no one narrative mm. about Steps House. You clearly learnt lots about yourself, though, because there's, there's a self-reflective element in the book. So finally, I suppose I want to ask, this is looking at one's own role in history, at the importance of reflecting on one's existence in a bigger context. Absolutely. And, that, and the house did lead me to that because it's a very insignificant house in, well, you know, within global history, an insignificant village. But like those objects that Neil McGregor poured over on his wonderful series of podcasts and indeed in his exhibitions at the British Museum, it's indicative of a much larger narrative. And so that made me think about who I was. I'd always thought of myself as an urban soul. I'd lived in London from the age of eight to the age of 33, 34. And we moved out around that time and went out first to Bedfordshire, was not particularly rural, but now to Herefordshire and Somerset. And it made me realise that that was actually where I am. And that took me back to my roots, which was that my grandfather was a Welsh sheep farmer. There's a moment in Howard's End where the Schlegel sisters say to Leonard Bast, ancestral voices were calling you home. And there are ancestral voices all the way through a home for all seasons. And I think they have called me home and I never want to leave. Gavin Plumley, thank you so much. A Home for All Seasons is by Gavin Plumley. It's published by Atlantic Books. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hall, Maya Renfer and Tamsin Howard. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, MixCloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>